Cannibalism. It's a word explored in the work of our next guest. Artist Nahuia Harrison asks us, who is eating what as industry continues to eat away at the health of her harbour in Northland? Whangarei te rerenga para oa. On the harbour, the Marsden Point oil refinery produced 70% of New Zealand's refined oil needs before being decommissioned in 2022. For Whangarei locals, the refinery was both an employer but also a polluter. For Nahuia of local iwi, Natiwai and Napui, Marsden Point is just one of many personal reference points around the harbour in her research into our different concepts of property with the foreshore and water. Her exhibition Coastal Cannibals is currently on at City Gallery Wellington Te Whare Toy, and I started by asking her about a term she uses that was recently coined by an American philosopher, Nancy Fraser. It is cannibal capitalism. Well, I, I suppose the sort of basic idea of um, cannibal capitalism or what I understand from Fraser's work is that she was really addressing this idea that capitalism um, eats away or cannibalises uh, the very states or the very resources it also relies or depends upon uh, for its existence, for its survival. So obviously the environment... Um, resources, natural resources being a big one yep. uh, that capitalism cannibalises, and then um, people, uh, people's body, their labour. From what I understand, she ca- um, comes at it um, particularly from a feminist lens, so mm-hmm. looking at the sort of use of woman, of care, of woman's labour, and the sort of cheapening of that or the commodifying of that uh, particular type of labour. But, yeah, generally... Uh, the way that people have also been exploited as well as the environment to serve capitalism. And, and in terms of Whangarei Harbour, the, there is the kind of sense that industry, capitalism's mechanism of industry, has kind of eaten away over a very long time at the sort of, at, at, the, at the edge. Yeah, big time. Um, so yeah, there's been heavy industry established on and around the Whangarei Harbour for over a century one of the first industries being the Portland Cement Works, which was actually a first established, I think it was actually the first sort of cement works in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, so before the Golden Bay Cement yeah, Works so that, and so Yeah, so it forth. became that. Ah. Yeah, so it was initially the um, limestone works or the cement works that were on Matakohe Island, so it's an island in the Whangarei Harbour. Wow. So that was, yeah, established in around the 1890s, I think. Yeah, and then from there it's just yeah growing and yeah as you say eaten away at the harbour itself. This this eaten away this idea of who's eating who and and the concept of cannibalism it's kind of fascinating because you also talk about the fact that climate change is seeing the sea be the cannibal almost of eating away at, at, at this kind of liminal edge that we we live on. Um, but I just want to come back to that word cannibal because it's quite interesting in terms of your fucker papa with Nati Y and. I see in the show that there is a connection there right back in your research to Te Hoturu or Toy, Little Barrier mm-hmm. Island, and yes. how that was taken. Yeah, so I guess the name uh, of this body of work itself, the uh, Coastal Cannibals, came uh, really from an article or an interview that I read from um, New Zealand Railways magazine, I think it's called. Ah. And it was published in around the 1930s um, by a guy called James Cohen, and he had interviewed our one of our Ngātiwai, Rangatira Tūpuna Paratini Te Manu, and 
he'd interviewed him on Hauturuotoi, Little Barrier Island, wow. around the time we were, I suppose the Crown was in the process of evicting us. <laughs> yes. And he was a much, um, much older man then. He was in his 90s. And the language that Cohen used to describe him um, was kind of, I suppose, the language of the time, this sort of noble, savage sort of um, caricature. But throughout the article, he used the word uh, cannibal to describe our tupuna. And it's quite a jarring (laughs) word to see. And how did he use it? I mean... Was he was he actually suggesting he was eating other people, or was it almost like a sort of a you know a, a, a term of reference? <laughs> yeah, I think it really was just like a term of reference. Like Jeez. this is how I. Um, I mean, if I was to be fair for a second, I think he was kind of there's a kind of tone of awe. I mean, Paratini Temanu was a fighting chief. He fought a alongside Hungihika. He, you know, would have, I imagine, been an incredibly formidable person to meet. Um, So there is that tone, but it's, you know, definitely also coloured by a kind of white supremacy and a sort of condescension. So, yeah, that kind of noble savage trope is throughout the article. And I think Mm. he uses cannibal in that kind of way. Like this is a a sort of prime example of a dying race. This ancient relic (laughs) is is another um, phrase he used to describe him. Um, Yeah, so it's... Yeah, I don't know if, it, if it's positive, but it's, um, yeah, the language is kind of complicated in the way that he was using it. It's just an assumption, his assumption, I suppose, that he probably ate people. And, yeah. Well, still here. <laughs> still yeah. here. Yeah, still Land, here. And, and I mean, that's something you commented on in your writing that, and I guess this brings us to, to Marsden Point oil refinery, that the land around the harbour has been totally eaten away by industry, it has taken the land, but in a sense, it's also fed iwi in terms of jobs. I mean, mm. it's a very complex situation. You've got an elder mm. there, Aston Peters, who I think's really <laughs> pushed for <laughs> for the port to be moved to Whangarei as well. So it's not a sort of cut and dried. It, that's what I like about your work. There's a complexity for perspectives, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really important to draw out those complexities. I think, I mean, if we think of someone like Cohen in his writing, it's very one-dimensional, these sorts of tropes of indigenous indigeneity, when the reality of any people's lives is far more complex. I think even today as Māori, we we often run the risk of kind of stepping into or perpetuating these tropes ourselves. And we know that, you know, lived life, lived experiences is a lot more complicated. So for me in my practice, it's really important to um, and I'm not even trying to have an answer to these things. I, mm. I don't think you really can. It's really just about trying to complexify uh, um, these conversations. And for myself, trying to understand um, the sort of multitude of perspectives that a, a group of people, uh, an iwi, a hapu, a whānau, they're not just a homogenous group with one opinion. Yeah, um, Yeah. as you say, Winston Peters, um, he himself, whakapapas to Patu Harakeke, uh, the hapu there right at the their harbour mouth and and this is land is, that was confiscated I think from yeah from yeah hapu. so and there you have somebody really pushing um, for those for those developments and he's not alone um, in that opinion within hapu and iwi and whānau. 
And I think it's important to, yeah, to not uh, step into that kind of um, knee-jerk reaction to want to really simplify things and that actually it's sort of important, I guess, to, to sometimes just sit with the the way that things are complicated, uh, the way that things are really complex. Well, it sounds like growing up that the, the oil refinery was a big part of your life, right? So, Fana, your family, your, your, your grandfather were all involved. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, I like to think of it, I, we have the sort of, I suppose, obvious whakapapa I, I, I have to the Whangarei Harbour. Our Tupuna Maunga Manaya stands there at um, the Whangarei Heads, the very sort of recognisable silhouette. Oh, yes, yes, beautiful yeah, Maunga, yeah. Which anybody that's gone over the Brendurins will know. So that's our Tupuna. Um, from whom all Ngātiwai people descend, as well as many other Hapua Niwi in the Whangarei area. But I also, um, coming much, much uh, more into the uh, into the future, I guess, uh, from Manaya, um, yeah, have this kind of whakapapa to the industry itself. Yeah, my grandfather worked in one of the initial building stages of the oil refinery, building the first chimneys. Um, and then my dad worked there through Think Big, and then, you know, subsequent uh, mm. generations, my cousins' um, uncles worked uh, at the refinery. In fact, one of my cousins was part of the team that pulled down the chimneys our grandfather built. So <laughs> there's this, again, for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's trying to complicate our relationships to these places that, yes, at once are ancestral our blood ties, uh, you know, sit in our blood memory, but also have this, uh, I guess, post-colonial uh, connection too, which, I mean, the similarity for me is that they're both about sustenance and sustaining a family and a people's. Yep. It's just that, you know, the ways in which we've had to do it within modernity, Māori have had to sort of sustain whānau within modernity, is to be, you know, part of part of these industries that are also degrading that environment we are ancestrally connected to. Is there a positive to things changing? I mean, I've, I've seen previous work where you've dealt with an island there which was looked at to be a park and then was turned into a landfill with all those yeah. leachate complications <laughs> and becomes a park. Is the marine life coming back? The... I mean, I think in terms of the Kaimwana and the state of the Moana in that area, no, it's no. it's quite grim. Yeah. Um, you know, reports uh, Patu Harakeke, in particular the hapu, the mana whenua, um, the, in that oil refinery area, I mean, they have a really active environmental group and mm. they're always monitoring their rohe and yeah for the last uh, presentations I saw them give it, it's pretty grim you know you have a pippy bed um, you, like fast heading to extinction um, there's rahui now on the scallop beds I mean it's a marine reserve around the oil refinery itself I, I don't know why you'd actually <laughs> want to collect seafood there <laughs> You know, because you've, you've had 100 years of industry in that area. You had the freezing works, you have the port, and you've got the oil refinery. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so, I, I mean, it's not looking good. But, you know, I think it's, ho- I think what is hopeful is things like what uh, group, uh, what hapua are doing and enacting their tino rangatiratanga, you know, in spite of, or in the face of, I should say, you know, constant challenges from the Crown um, in order to do the work that they do. But uh, but I think that that is a really hopeful thing. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of buy-in as well 
maybe a lot is a stretch, but there is buy-in from local, you know, non-Māori community yep. um, who've who've lived around that area for a while. You know, they they see the degradation. You know, it's hard not to. So mm. it, it's got to be compelling. Yeah, I, I, it, this affects everyone. I think this is something interesting, looking at your work, where your focus here is also looking at legislation and how that's kind of regulated things. And, and that you know that, that affects sometimes, I'm thinking of the Treaty of Waitangi Fisheries mm. claim here, like it hamstrings mm. all small-time businesses. Yep. You mentioned in this exhibition the Oyster Fisheries Act of 1866, mm. regulating Māori oyster interests as non-commercial, sort of taking economic power. But then you've kind of got, the, I wanted to really ask you at the Marine and Coastal Area Act, the mm. Takutai Moana Act, mm-hmm. and why that's central to this project. Well, I think really the the um, the sort of seed of this project came from uh, that legislation, and that in 2017 I was watching, you know, my own hapu and iwi really racing against the clock to get their Marine and Coastal Area Act or MACA claims in. And I didn't know uh, about this act, this legislation, and so this sort of impulse for this body of work really came about from me wanting to learn. I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, best things really about being an artist is you have this opportunity to sort of, to learn um, about, um, you know, take the time to learn about, about these issues. And wanting to understand about the MACA, which, of course, was uh, what the national, um, John Key National Government replaced the Forsher and Seabed Act. This is the Marine and Coastal Area Act, MACA, yep. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, so in coalition with the Māori Party, MACA was brought in over Forsher and Seabed, um, which very controversial piece of legislation, uh, caused a lot of upset. And, but really, when you look at the MACA, there's not really much substantive difference between this new legislation that mm. Māori are working under and its um, predecessor, Forsher and Seabed. But I think beyond that, what I realised, um, you know, these legislations aren't created in a vacuum. Um, and to understand the situations, predicaments or policies that we have today, they have a history attached to them. And so the project really became about wanting to understand this erosion, again, this cannibalisation of Māori rights and sovereign rights in our marine and coastal area. And, yeah, the first, um, as you mentioned, the Oyster Fisheries Act, that's the first uh, piece of legislation enacted in New Zealand or the settler colonial nation New Zealand around a fisheries or regulating a fisheries in this country in the 1860s. So, you know, a couple of decades after Tetiriti and it has explicit clauses that you know make clear that Māori are not to have any economic benefits yeah. from their uh, so the oyster beds that also the crown sort of you know put aside set aside for for yeah. us and so when you look at an, a legislation like that the marine and coastal area act and the sort of how hamstrung our customary rights are that totally makes sense that tracks mm. that um, that history tracks and so yeah for me it was wanting to untangle those historical threads a bit and for for myself firstly just make clear like okay you know this didn't happen in a vacuum this has a long history we shouldn't be surprised 
I think at the heart of this for me, which is really interests me about your work, is dealing with sort of different notions of property or how that they they Pakiha Māori that they, they do change and no more so than the, this kind of changing tidal space, literally a tidal space between the land and the water. Uh, an image in the exhibition that really strikes me uh, is of a pontoon like a floating oh, yeah. pontoon, right? A sort of an extension yeah. in it that way as a jetty on, onto the water, which you've called, I think if I'm right, the, the, the title is Tauranga Waka, yep. referring to the kind of areas that were taken from Māori where, yeah, they were kind of more like commons areas, is that mm. right? Yeah, so I, I think um, earlier uh, you spoke about a, a works that I'd done around a, um, a landfill, a dump, and the history of that dump in Whangarei, which is now a sort of public park that they've created after capping the landfill, that area was one of the um, early Tauranga waka. So, yeah, a place that Māori would uh, leave their waka uh, when they weren't being used. So a marina, I suppose. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and that was also uh, the site's... Um, from what I understand, the sites around Whangarei, they were also sort of pan-tribal, so they weren't, these Tauranga Waka sites were for all Māori of the area to use. And so to me, there was this link between this idea of commons, uh, common use that you might see in in, in, in English law. And yes. when, be, because of, I suppose, because of the common use of these sites, they weren't passed through the native land courts. Mm. And that made it actually easier for the Whangarei Harbour Board to, uh, at the turn of the century, to st- to take those lands because it seemed as though there was no, you know, there was no owner or a group of owners, and there was pushback at the time from uh, local Māori, including my great 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 grandmother. Her letters are actually in the archives where she wrote to the Native Minister, James Carroll, talking about these are actually common sites, they're common for common Māori use. She uses phrases like that, which had this real resonance to sort of English law. So yeah. I felt as though they were, you know, they, they were adopting the language and the phrases of like English property law um, or English use rights um, to sort of argue their case which ultimately didn't work because the sites were taken from us. But, yeah, I think what's a kind of, I don't know, funny, (laughs) funny is the right word, but uh, in those developments now in the Ruakaka area around the Whangarei Harbour where you've got these new uh, residential developments. Yeah, I was going to ask, yeah. yeah, (laughs) You've got, like, they're not really Tauranga Waka because it's not a common use, right, but Mm. everyone has their own little individual uh, little jetty at the end of their, um, you know, batch or house or whatever it is that they've bought that uh, property for. So it's like, yeah, it's just playing around, I guess, with those that language, that tension between private property and commons. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's again, it's that for sure. And it seems to me that the work is nicely positioned, that it really is about the quality of lives for everyone. You you have these kind of, uh, I think you've called them desert villages, the sort of promises of housing developments that haven't eventuated or others that have been built in, in the Orohi. Yeah. You know, where, where Pākehā as well are kind of dislocated from... Totally. Uh, a lot of public services. services. Yeah. 
it's interesting that your work is, you know, it, it it's so built around your whakapapa and Ngāti Wai and the area that you've grown up with. Is, it, is that always going to be the case for you, do you think? Is this, this is going to be your lifelong work? It's, you know, it's funny. I've really, I've, I have, I've thought this myself and I've thought, how could I make work overseas? You know, if you, you know, <laughs> lots of people do it, or, or, you know, you go overseas, you do fellowships and that sort of thing. And um, it's a very enticing idea. And then I stop and I think I, I have a real block, to be honest. I don't mm. really know how to make work I don't know what I would say if I wasn't trying to speak for my own people and I feel like they're sort of the only it's sort of the only people in place I can speak for yeah it it feels very much like a sort of creative block um, (laughs) when I think of trying to go elsewhere I, I don't I don't know what I would say and I don't know who would give me the mandate to say it I try to work with my people with our komatua and and they they give me the tick they they give me a mandate and I I don't know where I would get that from elsewhere wow it sort of funnily enough reminds me of the old modernist sculpture um sculptor thing of being true to materials the truth of materials (laughs) and that in a a way conceptually is is what you're doing how do you feel about the word activist in terms of the work um or does it just I, oversimplify it? I suppose I, I I personally feel uncomfortable claiming any title like that. Uh. Um, I also grew up hearing about, you know, the words real and true are probably, you know, not the best words to use, but I feel like I grew up, you know, hearing stories and knowing of real activists mm. and the sort of, you know, physical, I guess, material um, sacrifices that people like that have made. And I know that, you know, people like Maturangi Nui Walker talks about um, activism kind of coming in all shapes and sizes and using the pen, which I suppose artists what you know, use a lens or a paintbrush or something. But it does sit yeah. uncomfortably with me um, just because of, because of that sort of certainty of safety. <laughs> yeah. I, I would hope it sort of activates people to think a little more deeply about um, the places that they feel attached to and the history in particular, um, perhaps who has who has lost because you have gained. And mm. I don't say that in any sort of persecuting kind of way, but that's what I would hope, that yeah. um, people take a second, or longer than a second. But no, that's a yeah. lovely way to put it. I know I'm I'm moving all over the place, but I actually do want to talk about photography just a little bit before we finish, um, and that is, I guess, the, the the perspective of the documentary because what you do with the camera is is very interesting. You've got a series in Coastal Cannibals called First Cinema Camera, I think mm-hmm. it is, yes. which I think is a term of Barry Barclays in terms of perspective yes. of work. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you try and do in terms of the perspective you take? Yes. Well, um, Barry Barclay, yeah, um, and uh, people like Mira Tamita, uh, Natalie Robertson, uh, Nova Paul, uh, all these lens-based uh, Māori thinkers, scholars, artists, are huge influences on my work. And um, Barclay in particular wrote a lot around this idea of Indigenous cinema, uh, fourth cinema, and the fourth cinema camera. He didn't actually coin the fourth cinema term, but he's really, I suppose, 
known to have popularized it. What what is for cinema? What 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 is this this term? So, so that's the, so that's indigenous uh, cinema, and Barclay saw it as a, as the sort of mechanism, I suppose, of reclaiming our image. Um, so the sort of histories of Indigenous people being objectified um, with a lens. <laughs> Collected, Collected, Like yeah. a landscape. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yes, exactly, like landscapes. And, and you know, and, uh, I guess thinking of, uh, again, back to our tūpuna, Paratene Te Manu, this idea that we, we were going to die out. So it's like collecting these... Uh, mementos, if you will, of, of, of a people who are on the way out. And he saw Fourth Cinema Camera and the Fourth Cinema Camera as a way of reclaiming our, our image, so image sovereignty. And he talks about the first cinema camera being the camera that's on the uh, deck of the ship, so uh, mm. with the settlers, with the people, with Europeans who arrived, and the fourth cinema camera being in the hands of those who are ashore and those for whom ashore is their ancestral home. I suppose what um, I wanted to do again is just complicate these, you know, I'm always wanting to kind of complicate these <laughs> um, tropes, although, you know, it's, it's definitely not a kind of disrespect or anything uh, about um, Matua Barry Barclay's work, but, you know, just wanting to kind of extend and explore this idea and complicate it a bit. And so in that series, I am on the sea, I'm on the ship with a camera in my hand, so it's sort mm. of the first cinema perspective and I'm shooting back at the shoreline and I'm shooting the industry so yeah the oil refinery the port the freezing works whilst you know on the ship <laughs> it was a kayak but yeah um, yeah but at the same time I'm just <laughs> thinking if you're growing up watching those ships coming into the deep sea water port all of the time you know in the same yeah. way that the colonial boats came in it's sort of yeah and just and like you're complicating those relationships, you know. On one side, yeah, I uh, fuck up my my mum um, is from Te Tai Tokiro, and my dad's park here. So you know, even within me personally, I have that first and fourth cinema camera, if you will. So I guess these things are not straightforward. Um, yeah, I, I like to remind myself of that. So complicating things or showing the complexity of them, I guess, is one thing. I'm just wondering how we, how we reconcile these things into the future. The Whanganui River, as you mentioned in your paper, you know, was given mm. personhood. That mm. seemed like a bit of a game changer. Uh, do you believe that we can kind of hold all of these things in the way that we would hope in the future? That we can, we can hold on the one hand the need for industry and the need for, to, to think of, of that environment and the people? Big question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think just, yeah, to, to maybe answer a big question simply, I think that things do need to radically change. I don't think that we can. We just can't keep going in the way that we have. We have to rethink the way that we, uh, you know, our relationship to this, to these industries, what we think we're getting out of them, which, you know, by default makes us question our relationship and change our relationship to the environment and to one another. And, you know, whilst I wanted to understand more and understand perspectives like, you know, Winston Peters and why there was this push in my own hapua niwi to 
support the port expansion, for instance. You know, at the the time the port was looking for, you know, resource consent uh, to expand. Um, May we gave you know their 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 sort of tick for the resource consent. So there's support within Māori, and I wanted to instead of sort of thinking, oh that's terrible. Why 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 would you do that? I want to understand that perspective. You know that doesn't mm. mean I come to the you know get into this research and I agree with it. Um, I I don't, but you know maybe I understand it a little bit more. But I still think, no, we have to change our relationship to consumerism, to capitalism, if we want to hold anything going into the future.